You look over here and airplanes are going over making a lot of noise. They were looking for something with wide open spaces. From KJZZ Studios in Phoenix, it's season two of Untold Arizona. The podcast. I'm Tiara Vianne. Arizona is a unique place full of stories, folklore, and Wild West chicanery. KJZZ is celebrating Arizona with stories outside the usual news. In this episode, we venture into some untold tales of food, fiction, and film, some of the little-known arts and culture stories of the Grand Canyon State. Let's start in Tucson, where Mariana Dale delves into the largest collection of global children's literature in the country. Enter Worlds of Words. The director of the book collection is Kathy G. Short. She's showing me a gray plastic crate of books that just came in from Basel, Switzerland. I rip off the packing tape to find dozens of picture books inside. Short pulls out one with an orange and yellow cover. It's from Egypt. Okay. Yep, it's in Arabic. It opens from left to right. For us, backwards. But for this book, it's just right. It's the type of book Short would have never seen growing up in rural Ohio. None of my family members had ever gone to college. And so that vision of who and what I could be was pretty limited. Books were her escape, sometimes literally, from her four younger brothers. There was a big cornfield behind my house, and in the middle of the cornfield was a tree, and so the farmer would plow around the tree, and it kind of created this oasis. So I would go through the cornfield to go to that tree to read. When Short later became a teacher, books were a classroom tool. My kids were writing their own stories, and people didn't think that first graders could do that. My passion is what happens when you bring books and children together. And she believes there's something in those books for adults, too. I think children's books get right to the heart of the story and the emotion. Children's books don't have the subplots with the subplots with the subplots with the subplots. In 1989, Short moved to Tucson to become an assistant professor specializing in youth literature at the U of A. Short estimates she shipped maybe a hundred cardboard boxes of paperback books, much to the surprise of the department head. She started seeing the boxes arriving, and she realized, oh, they're not exactly going to fit in a closet. And I'm like, you're hiring a children's literature person. You know, what would you, what do you expect? I come with books. As Short became more well-known, she received books directly from publishers. The cardboard box collection grew and eventually ended up in the basement after a colleague wondered whether the building's floor could stand the weight. We were down in the deep dungeon. (laughs) We didn't have windows, and we were hidden. But the collection was popular with guests, so Short and her colleagues fundraised to build a light-filled space on the fourth floor of the education building. On this Saturday, Worlds of Words is open to the public. And we read it out loud in class, which was so funny. I watch a group of high schoolers open a picture book called Cicada by Australian Sean Tan. The chatter stops. It's hard to capture on the radio, but that silence is what it sounds like when people fall headfirst into the pages in front of them. Pilar Muller whispers her reactions as she reads. It's so dark. She says it's dark. Though there's just a few words on each page, the book explores deep topics, like the feeling of being alienated at work. As soon as Muller and the others finish the book, the volume goes back up. This is a book that I would never even see. I wouldn't know existed if I didn't come here. The book lives in the Oceania and Australia section. 
Short has the collection organized by regions of the world. We're trying to really highlight either books that have won awards or books that feature groups that have been misrepresented or underrepresented. Today, 28% of children's books published in the U.S. feature a character of color. That's double what it was even a few years ago. For college student Aika Adamson, that means she didn't see her experience as half-Japanese and Okinawan in the books she read growing up. You start to think that you don't have any place in these happy, magical worlds. She remembers when she was eight years old, kids at school made fun of the traditional foods she brought for lunch. They make a big deal of like moving to different tables, saying how my food stinks and all. That really like hurt me. Adamson wonders if they knew more about her culture, they'd have acted differently. She now works at the Worlds of Words surrounded by diverse books. There's more and more people like me and other people who don't fit the usual like white, straight, cis kind of box. It's great to see that like, these are becoming more normalized in the world. In that way, books are a mirror where people can see themselves. For Kathy Short, though, they were something different. Books for me was a way to, a window out onto the world. They weren't just a mirror, but they were what allowed me to envision something different for my life. The books Short has so carefully collected in the worlds of words allow children and adults to do both. They can explore their own identity, whatever that is, and imagine another time and place. Mariana Dale, KJ's Easy News, Tucson. From the printed word to the silver screen, our next story is about Arizona and its many close-ups in movie history. Arizona sandy dunes were famously used as the otherworldly backdrop of Tatooine in the original Star Wars trilogy, and the desert landscape near Page acted as a chimp planet for both the original and the 2001 reboot of Planet of the Apes. But one small valley in southern Arizona is celebrated in a film that's less apocalyptic and more Americana. Here's Claire Caulfield. Hollywood in the 1950s was buzzing with excitement. That legendary composing duo Richard Rodgers and Oscar Hammerstein were preparing to transform their wildly successful musical Oklahoma into a feature film. But they'd have to leave the soundstage behind to give proper homage to the vastness of Oklahoma pre-statehood. The corn is as high as an elephant's eye. And it looks like it's climbing clear up to the sky. The musical is set in 1906, when location scouts started looking for a place to film in Oklahoma just 47 years later, they couldn't find a single suitable spot, says Arizona State historian Marshall Trimble. They logged in 250,000 miles traveling around Oklahoma. Everywhere they looked, an oil well would pop up. Uh, you look over here and airplanes are going over making a lot of noise. They were looking for something with wide open spaces. Legend has it a scout was thumbing through an Arizona Highways magazine when he saw a photo essay about the San Rafael Valley, a small patch of land about 40 miles east of Nogales. It was just a beautiful country and you've got the lush green valley in the summertime. So the studio set up shop. The cast and crew stayed in Nogales and traveled hours to filming locations in remote areas around southern Arizona. The main actors were in limousines, of course, on a dirt road that was getting washed out quite regularly during the summertime. Former U.S. Representative Jim Colby was about 12 years old when a scene from the movie was filmed on his family's ranch. 
He remembers watching flatbed trucks carry stalks of corn past his school window. They planted it all down near Nogales, which is much warmer. And then they transported each corn plant in a pot up to the San Rafael Valley and planted it in when they were starting the actual filming. The corn was still not quite as high as an elephant's eye, as they like to say there. But it's not just the stunted corn that gives away the true location of Aunt Eller's farm. There's too much mountainous topography. That's Stephen Semkin, a geology professor at Arizona State University, who's also worked in the Sooner State. It's quite flat. And then if you contrast that to this relief map of Arizona, you can see that most of Arizona is is much higher than that. And certainly, if I were an Oklahoman and looking at that movie, I would say, well, that's not home. That's not that's not okay. <laughs> what is similar between Oklahoma and Arizona is the experience of early settlers. It took immigrants to the Arizona Territory almost 50 years to lobby for statehood, says historian Marshall Trimble. When you're a territorial citizen, you're really a second-class citizen. You can't vote for the president. You can't pick your governor. A lot has changed in Arizona since those frontier days and since the golden age of Hollywood, when Gordon McRae and Shirley Jones crooned to one another in a golden valley framed by the purple peaks of the Huachuca Mountains. But the San Rafael Valley of today... It's just like it was 150 years ago, 175 years ago. Park Ranger Alan Clemens is caretaker of the San Rafael State Natural Area. He lives on the land with his trusty sidekick, a chunky corgi named Fargo. The 3,500 acres under Clemens and Fargo's care is an expansive wash of soft golden grass. Large, fluffy clouds hang in the crystal blue sky, and all you can hear is the wind. And there's no, uh, no power lines, no houses, no roads. It's 45 minutes to pavement. Dozens of other classics, like Little House on the Prairie, McClintock, and Tom Horn were filmed in this valley. All romanticizing, but preserving America's connection to the settlers who laid the groundwork for towns, cities, and states most Americans live in today. We hope to make it the same, you know, never let it change. And it's not just this small corner of the state. Arizona has 90 protected wilderness areas to ensure millions of acres can remain wild and free. We know we belong to the land, and the land we belong to is grand. Claire Caulfield, KJZZ News, reporting from the San Rafael Valley. You can see Claire's drone footage, as well as photos from the sparse San Rafael Valley, at untold.kjzz.org. Our final story is a sweet one. It's about a dessert that's been crossing the border from Sonora, Mexico, north to Tempe. Murphy Woodhouse and Matthew Casey dig into the history of a pastry called the coyota. Getting Doña Coyo's coyotas fresh on the weekend sometimes means waiting in line for the thin, flaky pastry. But on a recent weekend, Gabriela Cohen and her family got lucky. They avoided what she says can be up to three-hour waits. They were walking back to their car in Hermosillo's Via de Ceres neighborhood in less than 10 minutes with four warm packs. Gwen says coyotas are about nostalgia and having a piece of where she's from. She's going to take one pack back to California where she lives now and send another to a son in Tennessee. Doña Coyo is the first of a string of coyota bakeries in Via de Ceres. Sweet and savory smells drift into the street from historic one-story adobe structures. A quarter mile south is Coyotas Doña Maria, 
where the signature Sonoran pastries were first baked on a commercial scale in the 1950s. Work and the rhythmic sound of rolling pins begin early there, around 3 a.m., says cook Zulma Encinas. Encinas is flattening out the dough for mini coyotes. This batch will be filled with a mixture of cajeta, a caramel made from cow's milk and shredded coconut. That's just one of a number of common fillings. Encinas makes around 1,500 mini coyotes a day. She says many in her family have worked in the factory over the years. It started when the bakery's founder, Doña Maria Ochoa González, needed a cook for her workers in the bakery's early days. Encinas' recently widowed grandmother needed the work to support her large family. Encinas' aunts and mother eventually learned how to make coyotas. She's proud to be a part of the business. And Ana Catalina Moreno Ochoa, one of the founder's seven daughters, is proud of the business her mother built from the ground up. Bueno, mi mamá empezó en el año de 1954. Ella empezó haciendo para la casa, para la familia. She says her mother started baking coyotas in 1954, at first just for her family. And then her cousin, the owner of a well-known restaurant, asked her to make them as a dessert. They caught on quickly. Pues cada quien tiene su receta. Mi mamá tiene la receta original. Many have their own coyote recipes, Moreno says, but her mother's is the original. The company experimented with exporting to the United States in the early 2000s, but ultimately gave up because the fragile pastries don't endure the journey well. They also taste best just out of the oven, not after days sealed in plastic wrappers. Doña Maria has never considered setting up a bakery in Arizona. But there is some coyote baking going on north of the border. Matthew Casey picks up the story in Tempe, where an architect-turned-line cook aims to make her coyotas just like Doña Maria's. Minerva Orduño Rincón flips a switch, and a food mixer starts her next batch of coyotas. Basically just cutting the lard into the flour. To this dough, she'll add a syrup of water and the key element of her coyotas, piloncillo. It's unfiltered sugar with the molasses still in it. To me, it's like that piloncillo scent. It's just such a strong memory. Piloncillo doesn't just go in the dough. Orduño Rincón also grates it for coyote filling. She took cooking classes after leaving architecture, worked in big kitchens, and started a business that sold coyotas. It's evolved into her teaching how to cook Mexican food. To me, coyotas from Doña Maria are authentic because that's what I grew up with. Orduño Rincón rolls balls of dough into round flat circles and lays them on a baking pan. Piloncillo filling goes on top, then another flattened circle of dough. Holes are poked so the coyotes can vent while they bake. As the pastries cook, they produce a delicious smell, one that takes Orduño Rincón back to her childhood when she and her sister walked with their mother through the part of Hermosillo where coyotes were born. For Murphy Woodhouse, I'm Matthew Casey, KJZZ News. And that's it for this episode of Untold Arizona. Here's what's coming up next this season. It was just an empty space. Oh, it's thriving. There's all kinds of activities. It's just alive. In medieval Europe, all roads led to Rome. In Arizona, all rivers lead to the Colorado. This episode was produced by me, Tiara Vianne. The stories were edited by Al Macias, Michel Marisco, Chad Snow, and Carrie Fair Snyder. Our digital editor is Sky Shout. There are pictures, videos, maps, and more at untold.kjzz.org. 
Do you have an untold Arizona story of your own? Drop us a line on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram using the hashtag UntoldArizona. And check out our Facebook group where you can connect to more people who love a good Arizona tale as much as you do. If you haven't heard Season 1 or our other podcasts, check out podcast.kjzz.org. Find us on iTunes or search for KJZZ wherever you get your podcasts. If you liked this episode, help KJZZ tell even more great stories. Head over to donate.kjzz.org to make your gift of support. This is a KJZZ production. I'm Tiara Vianne, and thanks for listening.